This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. It's Friday afternoon and I have with the with me in the studio my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist. How are you, George? I'm very good. I guess excited about Chinese New Year coming yes. up in about nine days' time, I guess. That's right. <laughs> and but of course, we also have a serious issue to follow through from last week. We always do, don't we? We always do. Yes. Yeah, so last week we spoke about the brain drain in the medical profession that, you know, we are losing our doctors and something mm. that, uh, of, of course, is not a new problem. We've been talking about it for decades. Um, but it used to be perhaps um, a bit more concentrated internally that we perhaps lost the senior, um, the specialists from the pr- public sector to the private sector. Uh, and now what we're hearing about is losing even the young medical graduates, yes. um, the young medical officers who are leaving to go to other countries. We're hemorrhaging doctors. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, less balanced on the brain gain part, like, you know, uh, people like you who've come back uh, to serve in Malaysia, George. Uh, And what we did last week was um, we just highlighted some of the um, uh, causative factors, Mm. uh, the push factors. You know, we looked at uh, lack of a clear and certain career path for young doctors that's driving them them away. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, few opportunities for specialisation, especially in the fields that they are interested in. Uh, We talked about the lack of guaranteed jobs as well as placements for housemanship and and MO ships. Mm -hmm. Some pull factors as well. Of course, other countries perhaps uh, can offer for higher remuneration yes. and, um, you know, uh, we, uh, our guest from last week who's also joining us this week, Prof. Adiba, um, made a very important point that we need to stop looking at salaries for doctors as cost, but instead as investment. Yes. And, uh, you know, when we lose them, we're losing everything that goes into training them as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, she also pointed out medical officers are the backbone of our healthcare system. They literally are the ones who keep everything running, aren't yes, they? Yes, that's right. So, joining us again, Professor Dato Dr. Adiba. Kamaro Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at University Malaya. And joining her as our other guest, Dr. Timothy Ching, a consultant orthopedic surgeon. Again, um, two perspectives. Uh, and uh, we will this week be looking at solutions instead. What are some of our possible options to put a stop to this brain drain and whether we should be looking to other countries as the solution um, uh, with us, uh, something that some quarters have um, proposed to us. Prof and Dr. Timothy, how are the both of you today? Very well. Shall I eat? Hi, George. Hello. Hi, Hi Shall I Thanks for having me. Hi, yeah, Timothy. I'm doing good. Thanks. So um, do call us with your thoughts um, if you have ideas or um, suggestions or personal experiences. What do you think the government and the Ministry of Health should prioritise when it comes to retaining medical talent? The number to call is 0377332900 or you can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. I'm going to dive right in actually and get to the heart of the matter. What kinds of solutions would the both of you like to see? Um, Perhaps we can go with something like the top three areas that you'd like to see changed um prof can i start with you yeah i think um it's we've got to look at it in terms of timelines as well so the mid-term long term because 
although the problem uh, has been for decades, but it does seem like things are rather acute at the moment. Um, and if we don't put a stop to this, it could come to a like a point of no return um, for the services. Mm. Uh, of course, the most immediate thing is to have more posts, um, which means more money. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no two ways about it. If you look at, you know, the investment in public health care versus the um, growth in population, the complexity of medicine and people living longer, we've just not caught up with it. So, you know, just the sheer numbers of bodies on the ground to deal with it requires money, requires investment, requires more costs. Um, the second thing, um, and, and I, you know, it, it, when we talk about healthcare professionals, it's not just doctors, because actually nursing is an equally um, uh, big problem uh, as well as all the allied health. But if we, for today, if we concentrate on do- doctors and nurses, apart um, from posts and, and more money for both nursing and um, the medical profession, a clear pathway into um, specialist training um, to have a system in place that, like I said last week, to balance uh, the service needs versus the training needs for our doctors and nurses. And and that requires putting a much more systematic um, HR management and and education management system and and everyone working together together to you know to identify the places where you know services are needed how many in other words planning um and and uh, you know a clear set of pathway for training it's not that this is not happening but i think it's not happening uh, quickly enough and it, it means that Ministry of Health needs to sit down with Ministry of Higher Education, with the private sector, with JPA, with MOF. And I'm happy to say that uh, there have been movements just last week. Uh, there were a number of meetings uh, to discuss this, but yeah, it, it, it needs to be escalated. And then, of course, to look at policies that allow um, our candidates, sorry, our graduates who, you know, at taxpayers' money, are being trained in our public institutions and, you know, are being taken up by other countries. As someone said in the press over these issues, Malaysia is the only country where we help train doctors and to some extent nurses for other countries to take. (laughs) Yeah, um, Dr. Timothy, um, perhaps your top three areas and then we can uh, sort of try and unpack them a little more as we go along. Hi, thank you, Sharik, for the question. Um, I'll actually just break in the top two areas. Uh, the first will be human resource, um, and that would be everything from um, salaries, benefits, uh, the differences and in the inequality in benefits when it comes to contract and permanent doctors. And the second one would be uh, facility overhauls. So that means infrastructure, our equipment, our buildings, um, I'll leave it to you to choose which area you want to unpack. Uh, but to me, these top two areas are the main push factors and the pull factors from, from 
overseas. Yeah. And that's interesting. You're talking about human resource and uh, you seem to be pointing to physical, uh, mm-hmm. the brick and mortar issues as well, which we'll get into in a while. But human resource, obviously, it comes down to, and, and as Prof said, um, we need more posts mm-hmm. for one, which needs uh, that investment as well. Now, how is this linked to um, what, uh, we've been talking about with regard to contract doctors, Prof. Um, you know, it, I think just recently the announcement, well, not recently, a few months ago, the announcement was that over 4,000 permanent positions for contract doctors were approved. And this uh, admittedly is the highest since 2016. Um, how, how, how do we know how many positions we actually need? So that is the $64 million question, right? Uh, That requires um, quite extensive planning and mapping out of, 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 you know, the not just the public hospitals, the population, the requirements, but also um, the plans that private hospital conglomerates um, uh, have for building private institutions. Because like George was saying, we're just hemorrhaging, you know, we're not even playing catch-up. Um, and so, you know, a really, really, uh, I guess, in-depth planning, uh, human resource planning is something that that needs to happen. But uh, with, with that in process, it doesn't mean that we cannot kind of uh, take immediate measures to... Um, to address the, the problem. We cannot say, oh, we, we haven't... We, we, we're still planning, right? Yes, we we've, need been, to planning. we've planning been planning for a very because, long time. Yeah, we've been planning for a long time and things change. Um, um, but also, yeah, we, we also need to kind of address uh, it immediately. 4,000 is probably still not enough, um, you know, given the, the population growth, um, etc. Prof, you mentioned that we might reach a point of no return. Do you think we've reached there or we're near there? We're near there. And what worries me most is, you know, like what I said last week, um, I mean, there's always going to be people interested in medicine, um, I think, and, and parents who will push their children to do medicine. But as an educator, what worries me most is that who is going to be left behind to train the next generation if people are just kind of... Uh, you know, throwing their hands out and say, I'm going to private practice, I'm, I'm going overseas. The, the, the Timothys of the world are going to be the next generation of um, medical educators. So you, you're left with, you know, more and more junior people um, training the next generation. Um, Can I... Josh, when you and I train overseas, right, we, I mean, it's not to say that you know, um, the older generation make the best teachers. No, but you do need a pool of, of people to provide that training. And, you know, um, a, a, a pool of people who can train based on experience, based on, um, yeah, experience. And then you also need this, this pool of young people who um, are energetic and in touch. So it's it's ecosystem. So if you keep losing both young and old, who's, who's going to be left behind to teach and train? So can I, can I ask the, the... That's the thing that worries me most, actually. So can I ask the young doctor uh, in this discussion, uh, what 
um, makes you want to stay, Dr. Timothy? And what do you see your role, you know, in, in the context of what Prof has said about sort of being that next in line and passing on that, that training and, and knowledge? What makes me want to stay? Um, okay, so I, I did my undergraduate and postgraduate in uh, UM. I, I applied to Sabah both after my undergraduate and postgraduate for work. Um, and it's my 10th year here now. I, I believe in the country. I believe in the state of Sabah and I feel I feel at home here and I think it's still something worth fighting for. Um, and hence, I am still here and I have no plans, in fact, to leave Sandakan uh, in the near future. Um, yeah, my parents are probably listening to this. But... So let me just give a different perspective to this whole permanent post. I do not think that permanent posts are the answer. Me neither, um, Timothy. Yeah, so... Uh, It'd be great to have everyone having permanent posts, but the, the problem about Malaysia in general is that our implementation of our half-baked plans are also half-baked. And, and in 2016, when they implemented this contract positions to get more uh, house offices in faster because uh, our, our employment for, for doctors are limited by this thing called jawatan or post, mm. and that lies with JPA, mm-hmm. and, and that's a big headache. So, uh, it's okay to have them as contract, but so along, along over the last five years, things have changed a lot. But initially, when they first came in, uh, contract doctors had no, okay, number one, no flight warrants to, to fly back to their hometown. So this was a, a big discrepancy. They had no, uh, what we call, chuti tugas has. So if you're a permanent doctor, you get extra two weeks of leave if you're in the radiology or if you're in psychiatry. But if you're a contract doctor doing exactly the same kind of work, you do not have that benefit. Um, so that has been fixed along the way. What has not been fixed is uh, an, an, another very big discrepancy is the salary scheme. So a permanent doctor after five years is UD48 and receives that salary. A contract doctor after five years is UD43 and receives that salary. So that is a big difference in salary. And there is, as of now, there is no answer or no one knows what the salary scheme for the contract doctor is. Um, that's one. The other one is uh, has just been fixed was the postgraduate pathway entrance, and uh, a year or two ago there was it was non-existent mm-hmm. for contract doctors to enter postgraduate pathway. So, so you see that the issue doesn't really lie with whether it's it's contract or permanent. To me, it's rather the implementation of something that the government does without really really looking ahead. And now, when you put the permanent post in the equation. Another problem comes up, which is uh, the criteria, and no one knows how they actually select permanent uh, doctors. So I've got juniors who have gotten their medics, which is an exam with flying colors, who have had presentations and uh, extracurricular activities, basically a CV that is uh, you know glittering, and, and they don't get a permanent position. And some others who do not perform as well and, and somehow get a permanent position. So of course, things like these, and when you ask, again, no one can give you an answer as to why some get and some don't. So if you're a doctor working and living in that sort of environment, you and, and Singapore is offering you three times or four times the salary, I mean, you know, it's it's a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah. So so what Timothy said is is correct. You know, it in, in a way the, the the problem doesn't actually lie with KKM or or asset in the teaching hospitals. It's a much larger group within the civil service bureaucratic rules and regulations, right? And that's why there have been calls to form a, um, a health 
a dedicated health commission to, to look at this because, you know, you kind of have to dismantle quite a number of existing rules. I mean, I can bore you to death with some of the rules like Hadia Latihan Chuti and all these things which which form barriers to to service training. Um, and, and they were they were put in place with all the right intentions many, many years ago. But you know, it, it now doesn't suit um, the current climate. And I'm I'm in agreement in terms of this whole permanent um, and and uh, the the contract pose. In fact I'm sure George underwent the same style of training as I did in Australia, although George did his in Cambridge. Um, uh, <laughs> that you know, you have to you nobody guarantees you a permanent position. You have to compete with uh, you know uh, with a contract post every year. But but you do know that the positions are there. Think like you whether you get the hospital that you want, and in a way, it forces hospitals to 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 compete also. You know, for the best best doctors and, and in the US they have the, the matching system right I don't know what it's like in the UK but in Australia it's a bit like if you want to enter into um, a surgical training program you you know that these are the hospitals that are offering you the first year MO ship second year third year whatever whatever once you enter into the system and you pass the first hurdle you kind of know that you progress because the those are there but you will still have to perform um, so it's in, and so therefore the first step is is to sit down, breathe in, sit down, look at where this, how to map out this whole service needs versus the, the training needs, mm. and then you know kind of put the system in place. Mm -hmm. I think meritocracy is something that we as a culture yeah. we really grapple with as well. And when you add in all these layers of bureaucracy, everything, as uh, Dr. Timothy yeah. has said, there's no transparency. It's all very opaque. Mm -hmm. We'll come back and continue the conversation on medical brain drain or what are some possible solutions. My co-host, Dr. George Lee, in the studio with me, we're speaking to Professor Dr. Dr. Adiba Kamarul Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at University of Malaya, and Dr. Timothy Cheng, Consultant Orthopedic Surgeon. Stay tuned to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my co-host, Dr. George Lee. For our Friday Doctor in the House segment, we're discussing possible solutions for the problem of the medical brain drain that our country is facing. We're speaking to Professor Dato Dr. Adiba Kamaru Zaman, Professor of Medicine at and Infectious Diseases at University of Malaya and Dr. Timothy Cheng, Orthopaedic Surgeon. Call us with your thoughts, 0377332900 or WhatsApp, 0187898899. Um, your thoughts on what the government and the Ministry of Health should prioritise when it comes to retaining um, the medical talent that we're hemorrhaging, as George has said. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Timothy, if I could ask you about... Um, remuneration. Um, uh, how? Wh wh what kind of changes would you like to see? Obviously, everyone is going to say uh, it's not enough. Um, perhaps other countries are paying better. Um, how do we look at what is fair and, and also reasonable for both the individual doctors and for the government? Hi, Shavik. Thank you for that question. Um, so I, I know many people say that doctors should not work for the money. Uh, but especially when it comes to retaining talent, you really need an incentive for something that is attractive enough to retain locals. 
especially when neighboring countries like Singapore pay quite an attractive sum. Um, our on-call claims, for example, have been, the last review was many, many years ago, and for a medical officer, um, their, the current weekend on-call claim is nine ringgit an hour, uh, which is 220 ringgit for 24 hours. Uh, and Singapore is paying 480 sing dollars in, in, in a day, which is 20 sing dollars an hour. Uh, I mean, yeah, you don't really have to do the math, but it is kind of hard to retain talent when you are doing the same amount of work or maybe more and, and yet being paid that amount. Uh, yeah, so, you know, if, uh, yeah, that's, that's quite a big factor. And this is not salary, this is just the, the on-call claims. Yeah, so salary is another whole uh, whole issue altogether, but it uh, definitely a review is uh, is needed of our on-call claims and, and salaries. Yeah. And um, you talked about facility overhaul. Would you like to elaborate on that as well? Well, maybe not so much for, for the West, or maybe perhaps the district hospitals in, in Peninsula Malaysia also face the same problem. But when you're, uh, like example, uh, a clinic Kasiatan or health clinic Nango, which is uh, here in, uh, in the middle of Sabah, uh, patients have to go about three hours for a chest x-ray. So if you're a doctor serving there and you, you've, you experience frequent electricity cuts, water cuts, you know, you come to work one day and you have to see patients without being able to run a, a full blood count or without having basic, you know, equipment like a chest x-ray machine. Um, so, yeah, it, it can get a bit frustrating. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah. Mm -mm. Sorry. So, so, so I understand you're, you're saying that at this, the most fundamental level, we need to fix infrastructure issues in our healthcare system. And because that will cause ripple effects, it's, it literally is affecting the ability of what a doctor can do in the consultation room. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, that is true. Um, another example sorry another example that one of the tertiary hospitals here on the east coast of Sabah has a doctor patient four doctor patient consultations in the same room um so i mean you can imagine what that does for patient confidentiality and all but if you're in a in an area where you don't have enough rooms mm -hmm. you you know you either let the patients wait outside until evening or night or you just have to see more than one patient in the same room together so it's a lot of these uh, very fundamental things that, that really need to be fixed uh, to, to ease the frustration of government doctors mm -hmm. you know, as a whole, yeah. And um, what have you heard, I, I suppose, you know, from doctors of your generation, if I can uh, put it that, that, that way in, in a very rough way, I suppose. But um, how, how long can they wait for all these structural issues to be fixed before they also say, I give up, you know, <laughs> I, I need to, to do something else for myself, you know? Well, okay, so it really depends. Um, I, it depends on the kind of, of doctor, the kind of person you are. Some will just press on and, and do what you can with what you have. Um, if your autoclave machine breaks down, you find another way to serialize your equipment, you send your stuff to the, the nearest hospital five, five hours away and you reschedule and you continue. Um, and, and that's kind of what I guess I've been doing or just, you know, you just plot on and stand at a storm and stare at it. 
but I guess if you are not up, there's no, there's really no right or wrong answer. You know, if you have, if you need to earn, you know, a little bit more money, you need that. You need to go overseas. You know, you have a large family to support. Maybe you know you, then this is a multifactorial kind of thing, uh, which is why I've kind of stopped. I, I used to tell people, you know, don't leave. Everybody must stay and and save and fight. But then I realized <laughs> as time passes that it really is very hard to, to to force this down people's throats and just say, you know, okay, you know what, guys never leave this country and it's getting it's getting increasingly hard to persuade people to stay where for some people there really isn't much left to, to hold on to and it's actually very sad uh, when you think about it yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean Timothy the, what I'm hearing is w- w- obviously what I'm experiencing as well when I was a working UH number one uh, Professor Adiba highlighted that people are leaving and there's simply no trainers available there to train people And then on the other hand, uh, we have this massive disparity between income in the private sector and also the public sector. And it's a catch-22 situation because the enticement is way too, too strong. No matter how much the government is coughing out the money in order to increase that remuneration, it is simply not happening. So we're in this catch-22 situation. And the only way to find a solution has to be thinking out of the box. We have to be flexible in some way. I mean, some people may think that some sort of collaborations between private and public sectors, you know, to get the public doctors, uh, to private doctors to teach in public sectors and that sort of things. But it's always faced with obstacles in my personal experience. What's your view about us just like um, Prof. Adiba used the word, dismantling the whole thing and start from scratch and think of this as uh, outside the box. Yeah, I, I agree that some public-private partnership may work. But, you know, I mean, after after a short 10 years in government service, I realised that any kind of plan or policy really needs to be thought through. And, and even after planning, the implementation is often not, not standardised. And, and that's why you get you know, you might have some junior doctors in certain hospitals having a great time because they, you know, they, the, the simply the distribution of manpower is different. Yet at other centers, they will be dying from the workload. So even this this public-private partnership, um, and and you know, it's it's a good idea, but there really needs to be a lot of thought put into it. And and I think there are a lot more things we can fix fundamentally uh, before we we even think we about look that. at something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so yeah. Two, two things before we go to the caller, Shaoe, because this is something that, you know, I have in, in some ways spent a lot of time trying to put together and, and uh, working with others. And in, in first of all, having a structured curriculum, you know, when, whenever I talk about curriculum, the non-education is just, you know, the eyes just glaze over. But actually, it is having a written program that, talks about the syllabus, that talks about criteria, that talks about, um, you know, entry, exit criteria, who can train, how, how to train, what kind of assessments needed. That That is something that's kind of been missing. And it's it's something that we have managed to put together over the last few years. But by having this, it's far from perfect. And as Timothy said, there's so many implementation um things that can still go wrong, but at least it's a start that that we have people agree to train to the same level, to the same standards. So we now have the 23 programs, specialist training program with a written document that 
that guides both the trainers and the trainees on, on what to do. That's, that's number one. But the most important thing is, and I keep saying this over and over again, that everyone has to work together. We, I think many countries have a national postgraduate um, board, so to speak, you know, that brings all the stakeholders together that oversees the training. One, one of the problems was with the, with the Medical Act in the past, the MMC only had jurisdiction over the undergraduate program. So in a way, in, in terms of training and, and, and ensuring standards and all that that Timothy was referring to, we, we're in a transition phase. But, you know, there, there are many moving parts and a lot of people um, are working towards this. Uh, but when it comes to salary and all that, that that has to be um, something that the government takes. And what George, so what George was referring to, the, the private hospitals taking part, yes, that's important. And, and that's why we need this written document to guide everybody. And like when I said the, the pathway of the system, we could have one, one person being trained, say, at UMMC. And for, for, let's say, orthopedic training, maybe two years at UMMC, one year in Sandakan with Timothy and one year in Panda or somewhere like that. But when, once you have, you know, um, something, this, this curriculum to guide you and the trainers that have been trained, mm. this can happen. And you have digitization that can support all this, both in terms of documentation as well as distance learning, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we need to move towards. Secondly is, I feel pretty strongly about this, that the private hospitals that keep poaching our doctors, <laughs> many of whom are GLCs, right? They're part of need, the government. Are part of the government. Why can't they pay for some of that training? Mm -hmm. I did try this with an unnamed GLC, and we had put together a beautiful proposal, how much it was going to cost, da-da-da-da-da-da. It went to the board, and they said, this is none of our business. Mm. Well, I hope they're right? listening right Because now. the hospital, the state hospital and conglomerate, uh, you know, hires doctors as, um, hires doctors. They don't, I mean, as not as salaried, but mm. um, what do you call it? You know, um, when, when they when they buy rooms and things like that rather than part of salary. So, you know, I, I think the government and the private hospitals need to realize that it, it, it's, 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 it, it cannot continue the way it does. I just read somewhere that there's going to be a big, beautiful KL wellness <laughs> center that's attracting um, foreign, foreign patients for Medical tourism. What, what surgery, medical mm. tourism, which is going to bring billions of dollars. Well, guess what? <laughs> Patients are only going to come if those doctors are well-trained, are excellent. Mm -hmm. and, but if, if we continue the way we are, it's, it's, it's not going to continue. We're not going to continue to produce excellent doctors for much and, longer. And, and speaking of excellence, uh, I think our caller on the line has a point or a question about that. Johnny, thank you for waiting on the line. You have something you'd like to share today? Yes. Uh, good afternoon to all. I'm a retiree. So uh, about five years ago, uh, I received treatment from a different government clinic that's uh, not within my diary. And just recently, about one year ago, there was a new government clinic being set up in my uh, neighborhood 
you know, I was overjoyed. But the problem when I go there, the numbers, the numbers of medicine have been cut down. For example, just uh, normal saline solution is not provided for, you know. But there are so many medical attendants practically doing nothing but chit-chatting and looking at their handphones. Mm. So I'm con- my concern is there are more headcounts for the medical attendants, but the number of medicine is getting worse as time passes by. So I, I raise the issue now, the quantity, it might be an issue, but the quality, what is happening to the quality? You know, I cannot get even the basic saline solution I have to buy outside. Mm. So please um, raise this concern. Thank you so much, Johnny, for sharing your thoughts. So what he's saying that he can see the headcount, he can see quantity, at least in terms of medical attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure the level that they're at, but he's not seeing the quality of care that he should be getting at a very basic level. Any thoughts that, um, you know, would you like to contribute any thoughts to that, Prof? Dr. Timothy, perhaps? No, I'm happy to say something about this. You know, um, there, there are excellent medical attendants everywhere as well. And I think we've always had a tradition. I mean, someone told me the other day that, you know, there are medical attendants giving an anesthesia in, in Timothy, you'll know this better than I do in rural parts of Malaysia, right? So we've, we've always had a tradition of, of medical attendants and nursing taking on some of doctor roles, which, you know, in, in global health um, taxonomy is called task shifting. Mm-hmm. We, we can and we need to do this, but the key would be training, right? And, and we need not just to fill in the gaps, but there are many, many tasks that can be done by nurses, medical medical attendants, particularly in the community. There's, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it, but the key key mm-hmm. is in the training. Dr. Timothy, any thoughts? And, and supervision. Well, I think, uh, again, I'll go back to the basic uh, fundamental uh, distribution of manpower uh, that affects not only house officers, medical officers, specialists, but also the nursing and allied healthcare staff. And that is why you find some centers lack people and some centers have too many people. Mm. Um, and, and and there you go. So that probably explains why. Because I know, I do know of certain places where, you know, some of the nursing staff are working double shift. They are overworked, you know, they, they quit as well. Uh, so that, that again comes on the distribution of manpower. Same goes for house officers. It's a, it's a nationwide thing. As for saline solution, Again, I'm not sure about the policy of that center, whether they give out, uh, you know, basic saline solution, uh, whether they, you know, sometimes we do provide for a short period and we can't provide like a year's supply worth of, of saline, but I think it's fair to give at least a little bit of saline for for dressings. But uh, again, it's, uh, it's an isolated case, so a bit hard to comment on that. Yeah. And uh, I just want to uh, very quickly, um, before we wrap up the show, uh, ask about a a, a suggestion that has been put forth that we look to other countries Mm. uh, to bring in their doctors and and nurses (laughs) as well as a a solution, you know, uh, quite a band-aid one if you ask me. But Prof, you have thoughts about this? We've we've been doing this for ages, right? Um, I truly don't think that's that's a solution. Um, And, you know... Unless we're going to pay um, a, a high price to bring to bring the best in, which why don't we pay our own people high price mm-hmm, and, and exactly. retain them instead, right? So no, um, the answer is not that. Um, like Timothy is saying, it's it's the the um, 
maldistribution and the and like what George pointed out is the huge gap in, in pay disparity, both like what Timothy alluded to, the, the contract versus the permanent doctors within the public health system, and then the mm -hmm. private versus um, public health doctors as well as versus international going going internationally. So, um, as final thoughts, Prof, what would you like our new health minister, um, Dr. Uh -huh. Zaleha, to do next week, Monday, when I she think, gets into... Well, well <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I'm part of the committee that um, helped put together the health white paper. We mm. met her last week mm -hmm. and um, I think she's she's very committed to to addressing this problem and, and as you saw, uh, managed to get some opposed. But obviously, it's not something that she can um, can solve overnight, right? Um, I, I do think putting together um, a serious, I mean, everyone's going to say, oh, no, not another committee. But it is something that needs, you know, input from various stakeholders, but give them strict strict um, timelines and, and, and uh, to, to solve the problem. I mean, Nothing is not solvable, right? But of course, she has to. She will need to 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 push hard for uh, the upcoming budget to increase the percentage that goes into health, and some of that towards um, emoluments. Mm, a lot of it is money, and money actually well spent rather than mm -hmm. money just being poured into the big bad hole, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, Dr. Timothy, what would you like to see our health minister do immediately? Hi, so um, I'll just leave with one comment and a suggestion or a call to action. Um, yes, I totally agree that we should focus on retaining talents and not bringing in them from overseas. That would be the comment and the suggestion of the call to action, not just to our health minister, she's just but one person. Um, and it's very difficult to move a whole ministry with one person. I think uh, it, this is to the senior government doctors who are out there, to the, you know, everything, every rank from the KSU to the DG, to the deputy DG, and a lot more senior guys who are there, who are actually the machinery behind how things move and how fast they move, actually. Um, they need to push and especially and this i don't mean pushing the doctors but pushing the other two stakeholders which is the ministry of finance and jpa and and then only things will move because uh, honestly yeah we, we cannot rely on the health minister alone to to move things i think, I think we all know that by now yeah yeah, yeah I, I think just to change that mindset that that you know the the that doing nothing to change this is it's not an option because Ultimately, it's going to cost in terms of healthcare costs, in terms of loss of, um, you know, in, in, in terms of people not being able to return to work because they've not, not been looked after properly. Mm -hmm. the, the economic costs. Yes, productivity. Productivity is what I was looking for. And, and all that is huge from having people mismanaged. And this is before... We talk about, you know, development of antimicrobial resistance, um, 
you know, non-communicable diseases you know, and, yeah. and everything, mm. everything. Yeah. <laughs> mm. George, your thoughts to wrap up this two-parter <laughs> that we've been trying to grapple with. To be with honest this. with mm. you, actually, it is very obvious that the public hospital is feeding the private hospital and then the public hospital is crumbling because people are leaving. One day, there's no more doctors to feed the public, uh, the private hospitals and everything will crumble. So if we don't actually get this sorted out, we're not just hemorrhaging the doctors everything will be just come to a standstill don't you think you know best summary I've heard yes. <laughs> that's right and on that very alarming note I think uh, the, the best uh, way for us to move forward really is um, to stop having plans and ideas but really to just get everyone um, together uh, all the stakeholders that we've uh, heard about on the show today and uh, just start mindset doing something. and money yes absolutely yeah. mindset money investment um, this has been our doctor in house segment we've been discussing the medical brain drain problem with professor Dato dr adiba kamarul zaman from university of malaya and dr timothy Cheng, orthopedic surgeon and my co-host dr george lee this has been health and living bfm 89.9 You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.